Tim's out of town, as you heard, and uh, we've been going through Romans, and uh, we ended Romans the first half, and we're taking a break from Romans. We agreed to do that. Probably you'll hear the second half of Romans reappear in uh, sometime in 2011. But Tim went on vacation, and something strange happened. We, he didn't have a plan. He always has a if you know Tim well, he always has a plan. And so we sat around and said, well, what do you want to do as far as teaching? And he says, you can do whatever you want, Josh. You can, and it, that never happens. I just got to tell you, in our pastoral meetings, it's always conversation, discussion, work, that sort of thing. And I said, well, I'm going to go to my favorite parts of Scripture. And he says, okay, where are those? And I said, well, Joel. And he, he kind of looked at me. Um, Joel is a minor prophet. It's, that doesn't mean it's an unimportant prophet. It just means it's short, okay? But Joel is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And so today and next week, we're going to walk through two passages in Joel, just for two weeks. Uh, and they're both in Joel chapter 2, actually. And I'm going to read it for you. But you just need to know that this is an interesting passage of Scripture. And, and you know, you say, well, why are you telling me it's interesting? You know, prove it. Show me. Uh, and, and I got to tell you, because Lona Yeager, I taught a class. Westmont Christian Academy asks me periodically to teach a class once every semester. And I teach these half-day seminars on some book of the Bible. And the last one, they said, what do you want to teach? And I said, Joel. And they said, okay, well, we'll see how that goes. And uh, Lona Yeager saw it in the, in the Mercury. And uh, she says, you're teaching this class on Joel. And I said, yeah, that's right. She says, well, is it going to be interesting? She actually asked. So I ta taught the class, and it seemed nobody was asleep, you know. Everybody was awake at the end, four hours into it. And, and it, they really walked out and seemed they got positive feedback. But you never know. But this past week, I got an email from the head of this ministry. And uh, he sent me an email and said, would you like to come back in the fall of 2010? So Looney's not here, Harry, but you can tell her. I think it was interesting because they actually invited me back now. So I'm going to talk to you from the book of Joel, and I believe it's a very important passage, but I need you also to know that this is very much autobiographical. Um, Joel speaks directly to us. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't nuance things in these nice little, you know, kind of cliches. Instead, he states it hardcore, and I need that personally. Periodically, the scriptures need to look at me. I need them to look at me, get, provide a mirror, and show me what's wrong with Josh. And so this passage one, is one of those where historically it corrects something that easily goes wrong in my life. And so as I'm talking through this this morning, you'll know that it is a, a lot about what impacts the life of Josh Bitework, and that's why I would pick a passage like this. Let me read it for you, and then we'll pray. Joel 2, verses 12 through 17. It'll be on the wall behind you. It's in the New American Standard. That's what I read. If you have an NIV or a KJV or something else, just know that behind you is uh, a version of the Bible called the New American Standard, which will be like the one I'm reading. It says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom even come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? Join me in prayer. 
God, as we prayed earlier, we would see no man but Jesus, and we would ask that you would help us to understand what this passage means for us. It's word that you have uttered, God. It's word that you have spoken to us, and so we ask this morning that you would help it to apply directly to our hearts and lives, and we would ask that your spirit would do that as we know only you you are capable of. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. My son Noah, we, we have rules or guidelines in our house. Most, gui- most houses have guidelines, right? I have a three-year-old named Noah, and uh, we have a six, a five, and a three. And the six usually gets the most correction. It just happens, okay? She's the oldest, and she's supposed to be responsible. I was the oldest. I think she's getting a bad rap. I can't help her. It's just the way it goes with the oldest kids. Our middle one falls between the cracks. You know, she's just, she's cute, and she likes to be cute. But number three... Number three, Noah, literally three years of age and number three in the order, he refuses to be unnoticed. There is no way we're allowed to go for too long without keeping an eye on this kid. And it's just that he wants our attention. He's been known to grab me literally by the chin and turn my face towards him, you know, just grabbing me and saying, listen, Dad, I want you to look at me. I know you're talking to Mom. Look at me. Look at me. All right, so this kid at dinner, periodically does things. He, he, he knows that to get our attention, he can be this, he can be that, but the best way to get our attention is to be bad, okay? And one of the rules in our house is we don't say the word stupid, okay? We, we're not allowed to say that word to each other. You're never allowed to say, well, that's a stupid idea. You're never allowed to say, well, you, you, it's a stupid outfit you're wearing. You, you know, these are the sorts of things. And the word stupid has become literally the S word in our house, Okay, so periodically somebody will say, so-and-so said the S word, and I've had to clarify, you can imagine. Anyway, so the word stupid occurs more often. Once you make it a rule, it's like wet paint. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And so the word stupid appears more often in our house than I want to admit it does. So Noah, dinner a few weeks ago, looks at Maggie, and it's like nobody looked at Noah for a few weeks. So he looks across the table at his sister, and he says, Maggie, you're stupid. Just kind of says it quietly. And Shelby grabs him and says, we don't talk this way. And she, you know, holds onto his tiny little shoulders and just has this direct, you know, the eyesight is like this. And he's looking all over like this. But you can tell he just loves the fact that she's looking at him. And uh, he goes back to his place. And five minutes go by. And a little quieter, he looks across at his other sister. Sophie, you're stupid. This time Shelby... I forget what it was, but she does something of a disciplinary nature, and he is appropriately humble. He slouches down in his chair. He turns to the side. He's looking the other direction. He won't engage anybody at the table anymore. He's, out, he's looking the other direction, and uh, then he just kind of, nobody notices him for a while. He just kind of sits there, and then he turns back around. He starts to eat his food, and I look over at him, and I see something strange. I see a strange motion, you know, something about his demeanor said, look at him at that moment, and without uttering a noise. Nothing came out of his mouth. His lips just framed the word, two syllables. <laughs> and Shelby, being the smart mother that she is, caught it again. You know, we love to obey. We love to do the right thing on the outside, right? We, we can easily change a lot of parts of our behavior. God comes along and he tells us we need to do this, we need to do that. It's no problem. And like my son who can, who can stop making the noise we told him to stop making, we, we walk on, but we don't quite change our hearts. 
We don't have something of an internal nature shift. We just have this outside. So we become Christians and we start changing our habits. On Sundays, we go to church, okay? And for some of us, that's even a concession. It's like, okay, I'm a Christian now. I got to... Go to church. I told some of you in Sunday school, when I, when I was a kid, uh, the way to wake me up was that you could say amen, and I would just wake up. Because my dad is a pastor. He'd preach this sermon. He'd get to the end. He'd pray the prayer, and I would have my head down like this, acting, and I have my Bible open right here, you know, like this. And I'd be looking at the Bible down below, and in fact, my eyes would be closed. And he would say amen at the end of the pastoral prayer, and I'd be like, oh, I'm convicted, you know, great sermon. A lot of us look at church that way. We do things of an outward nature. We get to the we put something in the offering plate. We operate like God is noticing the outside of our lives, but the inside of our lives. Like my son's life, who wasn't changed. His internal will was not altered a bit. He was still saying stupid, even after he got done saying it with his lips. Even you know later on, I have this suspicion that in his heart he was saying stupid, stupid, stupid. You know, he just wanted to say it. This passage tells us this line, rend your hearts and not your garments. And the reason I give that example is because in the Old Testament, if you were a person who walked with God, you were somebody who would end up in Jerusalem for all these feasts and you would go to these special holy days and you would do all this stuff. But if you blew it with God, there was this thing you would, you would do. You would, you would offer a sacrifice, but then if you were really holy at the outset of the Old Testament, you would tear your garments when I was a kid, there was this guy called Hulk Hogan. You remember Hulk Hogan? What was Hulk Hogan famous for? He'd rip his shirt off. You know, when I was in high school, I read a magazine that said that he actually sliced down the back of his collar line to make that happen. I was so disenchanted with Hulk Hogan, you know? I mean, he's such a wimp, you know? Anyway, I wouldn't say that to his face, but... Anyway, that's what it said in the Old Testament. You, you would rip your garments and you would put yourself in some public place and you would take ashes from a fireplace and you would put them on your head. And what it would say to everybody who came by is, that guy has blown it with God. And he is in public humiliation. He is saying, I have messed up my life and I am sorry. And so I'm rending or tearing my garments. I'm putting this outward stuff all together and everybody can see how messed up I am. And at first when they started to do this, I suspect way back in the ancient history, I suspect it actually was pretty meaningful. You know, people were like, you know, to get to that point where you would actually do this act in front of your whole town, it took a lot. But then people started to just kind of make it part of their religious system. You know, they, they became people who, well, well, I blew it. I'll do that. And, I'll, and they, they would know even before they were going to blow it with God. Well, afterwards, I can just offer this sacrifice. And, you know, it's kind of worth the cost to sacrifice to God. And it's kind of worth the cost of doing this great misdeed in order. And, and then I'll just, you know, stand in the public square and tear my garments a little bit and I'll be okay. And it became part of their religious activity. And then by the time of Joel, who's hundreds of years after the start of the Old Testament, by the time of Joel, these people had taken this thing, was supposed to be this amazing sign that they were right with God, that they were trying to get right with God, and they made it just another part of their religious system. You know, you and I are aware that across this world, there are people who are religious. Sometimes we are those people. We come to church for what reason? Why? Why are we here? Is it because other people expect us to be here? Is it because our wives or husbands dragged us? Is it because the kids just kind of need a spiritual place to be? 
Or is it because we've had a heart change and we realize that we find God inspiring and we show up to worship in community with other believers? This passage tells us that we are supposed to rend not just the garments. We're not just supposed to make a public spectacle of ourselves. We're not just supposed to engage in the external religious stuff. We've got to tear the insides of our lives apart. We've got to open up the very internal parts of our lives and ask God what he thinks of us. In Romans 8, it tells us, uh, uh, it gives us this title for God. It says that God is the searcher of hearts. You know, how many of you have ever looked at God and said, I wish I could take that part of his character away? Honestly. You know, there are things in my life that I don't want you to know. If I'm honest, I really would avoid anybody knowing this or that or the other thing about me. And then there are things that I would even wish that God could know. And yet the scriptures say he looks inside our hearts. He knows what's there. He can see. I would love to take that character trait away from God and just say, please, God, don't look inside me this week. Some weeks it's a pretty good week, but you know, some, sometimes I'm like, God, turn your laser beam elsewhere. Don't look at Josh. And this passage says... Listen, return to God, and the way you have to return to God is by breaking the internal part of your life. Make sure that you're not just doing the religious stuff of your life. Make sure you're not even just praying, reading the scriptures, all the stuff you know to do. Don't just do that stuff because you're accustomed to doing it. Do it because you love this God. If you're doing it for other reasons, the right thing for the wrong reason isn't the right thing anymore. It's a whole different deal. Well, that's one side of the equation, but the amazing thing about Joel is he doesn't leave us there. It's as though we're at a settlement we're, we're, we're at a settlement table where we're closing on a house and one person is saying, I'll give you this, this, and this, and the other person is saying, well, I'll give you this and this and this, but we haven't heard from God. What we know in this passage is that he is telling us that we have to turn to God. We have to return to him. We have to turn from the inside out. We have to clean the inside of our lives up and give them back to God. But what we don't know is what God's going to say about him. What does God bring to the table about the, in this equation? You know, I, I have kind of an understanding that in our culture, there's two perspectives of God. I'll call them the two misperspectives. One is that God is up there and he's this giant being. He's, he's kind of pictured like an older man and he's got a furrowed brow and he's looking down below us and, and he sees us and he's waiting for us to step out of line and then he's going to smash us like a bug. You ever hear anybody talk that way about God? Like he's just waiting for us to blow it. And he likes it when we blow it because then he gets the chance to correct us. And correct doesn't mean just kind of get back in line. Correct means he knocks you into next week. Some people in this world think that way about our God. Then there's another perspective about God. There's the perspective that God is love. And the Bible even says that in First John. But it says that God is love. And the fact is that God is so loving that he doesn't notice any of the stuff we do wrong. He's watching us, and he's like, oh, yeah, what are you going to do with that kid? They're like, a, they're like a normal mom, you know, that's just like, well, the kid's messed up. What are you going to do, you know? I'm not going to do anything with that kid. I'm just going to let him go. God doesn't do that either. Listen to what he says in this passage. Joel tells us these words, and they are important words. Each one of them is loaded terminology, and it tells us something about the character of God. In verse, in verse 13, midway through, it says, For he is gracious and compassionate. What does it mean to be gracious? Giving? Forgiving? Some of you aren't used to this, but when I ask a question, I actually expect the answers. You can, you can talk back. What does it mean? Above and beyond mercy? Okay. 
That's especially what it means in the New Testament. To give us what we don't deserve. Is that something close to what you said? All right. You know the earliest use of this word. You know what it means? It just means God likes us. It just means God likes us. You know, I have caller ID. (laughs) And you call me. And that means I'm going to reveal something to you about my character that I probably don't want to reveal at this point, but you're going to hear it anyway. When you call our home line, I know it's you. Okay? I see. On the thing it says so-and-so. And, you know, when my mom calls, I'm like, oh, it's my mom. That's wonderful. When it, when it's a lot of my friends, a lot of people in this church. It's great. And then every now and then, it's somebody else. You know what I'm saying? Now, you're, nobody in this room is one of those somebody else's. I'm just telling you. Nobody, you're all on my good list. But there's something in our heart that instantly reacts. When I, I cannot answer the phone without looking at the caller ID. Every time that phone rings, I look at the caller ID before I answer. And I'm not one of those people who lets it go, even if I don't feel like answering it most of the time, unless I see telemarketer or the 1866 or 888 things. But, but when, it, when it says this person or that person, there's a difference in my heart. It really is. I notice that my heart goes, yes. This person is calling me. It's, it's my buddy from Michigan who I haven't talked to in weeks and I was praying for him for something in his life. I'm so glad he's, gonna, he's calling right now. Or it's so-and-so. Or sometimes I see, on that, I see on that caller ID that it's somebody who I know is hurting. And I'm like, I brace myself. I get ready. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a pastoral call and we're going to talk. And I give Shelby the eye and I say, we're going to need some space because this probably is going to be a half hour or something. You know what I'm saying? But our hearts react. When the doorbell rings and I look out there at the front door and I see it's somebody I don't know, I always think one of three things. You know what they are? Amway, Kirby, Jehovah's Witness, maybe the church down the street. It's somebody who I'm kind of like, I don't want to go open the door. You know, my heart does not go up at that point. I had somebody the other day try to sell me something at the front door. I was just like, come on. I don't want to waste my dinner time talking with you, you know. Our hearts go up and they go down. Our hearts go all over the place. This word means that when God sees you on his caller ID, what does his heart do? Oh, it's so-and-so. I get to talk to so-and-so. Bob Phoebe is not here this morning, and I can pick on him then uh, as a result. I, talked, I called him yesterday, and I was talking with Bob, and we were going back and forth, and I said, hey, is there anything I can pray for you specifically? He said, just pray for me. I just, I just like it when people pray. And then he said, he said the most interesting thing. He says, you know, when, it's my thought that if I get enough people praying for me, when I get to heaven, Jesus will be like, oh, you're Bob. I know you. I've heard about you. Other people have told me about you. You know, God, Bob does not need me to pray for him for that reason. God knows Bob. God knows each person in this room. And what this passage tells us is that he likes us. Some of us kind of get the feeling that when we drag ourselves before the throne of grace, we come to God and we start talking to him, and, and we bring up the same stuff we brought up before, that maybe he's like us and he gets tired of hearing it. But this word says that maybe he enjoys hearing from us again and again and again and again. Because he just likes us. Interesting thought, isn't it? Beyond all of that theological stuff, grace is this or that and the other thing, it really literally means he just likes us. The second word maybe is even more fascinating to me. It says he is gracious and he is compassionate. That word compassionate comes from the Hebrew word for a womb. It has to do with a mother giving birth to a child. You know, you've heard of the Father God. The, the Lord's Prayer says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it focuses on God as Father. But this passage kind of refocuses us on God as a God who has maternal characteristics. 
Some of you know my wife, Shelby, and she's here, so I'm in trouble, unlike Bob Phobia. But Shelby is aggressive. Shelby, historically, am I fair? is it fair to say you're impatient on occasion? Yeah. She's am- and and when, I, when we first got married, I mean, people kind of thought I would be the nurturer. You know what I'm saying? I would be- One guy literally said this to me. He said, you might be Mr. Mom, and she goes to work. And that has not been how it worked out. You know, I have all of this patience with all sorts of things in my life. But when it comes to my three children, I have to work at patience. And it's as though Shelby has impatience with the whole world. But when it comes to our three kids, she is absolutely patient. There's something that changes that takes place in a woman when she has children. Wouldn't you say? There's something different about being a mother than being a dad. And I'm not knocking the rule of fathering. I'm just saying that it is different. God made it different. And the connection between Shelby and our kids, it doesn't matter how many times they fall and you know, drop off a, a playground a jungle gym. They don't look at me. They look at Shelby. That's because of this word, maternal compassion. It says that God feels the way about us that a woman does for her child. He feels connected. He feels responsible. He feels like he gave birth to us and he's walking through the whole thing with us. He is making sure that we are okay. He is constantly concerned for our well-being. And so when this passage says that he is gracious and that he likes us, it goes on to say he feels attached. He loves us. He loves us. And he loves us like a mother loves their child. It goes on to say a couple more words, just two more, and then we'll be done says he's slow to anger. I grew up in a farming community, Ravana, Michigan. The only other reason why you need to know Ravana, Michigan is that the, the left guard for the Philadelphia Eagles is also from my hometown. I don't know why anybody else in the world would know where, where Ravana, Michigan is. It's got about 1,000 people in it, and it's got about, got about 25,000 cattle in it, okay? Ravana is a cow town, and, and that's what it is. They're very proud of it. If you go there, though, you get certain levels of knowledge, okay? When you're in a pasture and you see the cattle around you, there's this moment when you understand, especially if there's a bull there, you understand you need to get on the other side of the fence from the cows. Do you know what that moment is? you know what, it, what tell there is or sign that a cow is about to lose it with your presence? It's when their nostrils get bigger. You look at them and their nose just goes like this. It's like it swells. You know, this passage literally, literal Hebrew, this is true, literally means that God is slow to have big nostrils. That's where that word for anger comes from. It's as though you're sitting at the dinner table with your dad, and my dad was like this. If you spilled something at dinner, at the, at, at the, it was like the biggest thing in the world, and my dad's nostrils just went boom, like this. You know, and he was instantly mad, and we would run for the towels. My mom would say, it's okay, Doug, it's fine, no big deal, blah, blah, blah. We'd, we'd clean up. My dad never could handle spilled anything at dinner. This passage tells us that our God doesn't fly off the handle and backhand his children accidentally. He doesn't just lose his temper and damage us like so many of our parents have. You know, even the best parents, once in a while, we lose our temper, wouldn't you say? Hopefully we don't do anything drastic when we lose our temper, but we have to admit in our hearts that we get a little bit angry. We get a little bit steamed. What this passage tells us is that God doesn't do that quickly. He may get mad, but he doesn't get mad in the lose your temper sense where he instantly just gets angry and you can't do anything about it. He's lost it and you're not going to get him back for a while. Our God loves us. He has compassion for us. He likes us. And what's more is he doesn't just get mad when we blow it. And we blow it a lot, right? There's a last word. It says that it says that God is abounding in loving kindness, and that word has to do with covenant-keeping love. In the Old Testament, 
And this is a little bit deep, so you're going to have to stick with me. But in Genesis 15, there's this weird story. How many of you have been to our house? How many, some of you have been to our living room. Did you ever notice the painting in the living room, in our, in our living room? Shelby and I have a painting of this story, Genesis 15. It's this covenant contract between God and this man, Abraham. Okay, in the covenants of that day, the contracts of that day, you never st- you didn't sign them and put your social security number or maybe your thumbprint. You didn't do that back then. What you'd do is you would cut animals in half. You would take all of these different animals, you would cut them in half, and you would separate the halves like this down the row. And this is kind of strange, right? You're glad we have signatures now. But but God and Abraham, they decide they're going to have a covenant. They decide they're going to have this relationship. And so they cut the animals in half like this, and they walk between, well, you should walk between these cut halves of animals. And the agreement would be that if one person said they were going to do this and such, if they didn't keep their end of the bargain, it told them that they would be dead meat. Okay? You'd be like these cut halves of animals. And so the, the two people would walk down it, and each one was responsible to keep their end of the bargain, whatever it was. And then the, each, each side of the animals signified what would happen to them if they didn't do what they said they were going to do. Now, the interesting thing is God shows up, and Abraham falls asleep. In fact, God puts him to sleep. So Abraham and God are there, but Abraham's asleep, and he can't walk through these cut animals. He can't finalize this contract with God. And God says to Abraham, listen, I'm going to walk with you through all of your life. And I'm going to walk with your children and your grandchildren and your grandchildren's grandchildren. I will walk with you eternally. But what happens? Abraham falls asleep. So God walks between those cut halves of animals in Genesis 15. This really will have bearing on this passage if you stick with it. God walks through these cut animals, signifying that if God is faithless, he becomes dead meat, right? What happens if Abraham doesn't keep his end of the contract? Abraham didn't walk through that set of cut animals. You know what it means? God was going to keep Abraham's end of the bargain as well. You know, 2,000 years after that story, Jesus died on a cross, literally God becoming dead meat, finalizing and living up to the contract that God and Abraham were supposed to make and that Abraham didn't keep. How many of you have let God down? Don't raise your hand, but in your heart, you have to admit, you have let God down, right? Each one of us has agreed to certain things with God. We've wanted to walk in relationship with him. And what this passage tells us is that God has always kept his covenant and he's kept it in love, but we have failed to keep ours over and over and over again. It's very normal for us to break covenant and it's not at all normal for God to break it. What this passage tells us is that God is keeping our end of the covenant as well. Jesus died on the cross. Why? Because he was keeping our half of the covenant, not just his. And so God is gracious. He likes us. He's, he's, he's compassionate. He feels possession. He feels like he loves us and he, he wants what's best for our lives. He has this ability to not just lose his temper like we as human beings would do. And lastly, he keeps his covenant. And what's more is he keeps ours. And he keeps them forever. Not, not for 100 years, not for 200 years, but for eternity. Once you see that, once you think of God as somebody who likes you and yet is right, somebody who cares for you and yet absolutely wants what's best for your life and knows that you have to live by certain guidelines in order to achieve that, you understand why he's so bent on getting us to return to him. Get our hearts right is what this passage says. Break your heart before God. Don't live out just the religious stuff of your community. What are you thinking at Tuesday at 10? What are you thinking at Thursday at 1? 
Are you focused on living the life that God has called you to do? Are we people who are living a religious life or are we living inside a relationship with Jesus Christ? This passage asks us to examine ourselves. I saw an interview, and I'll close with this. I saw an interview with Warren Buffett, the chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. Buffett is, most of you probably know that name. He's kind of the big guru of investing. He's definitely made more money for more people than anybody else in the last 50 years. And uh, he's worth billions. He gave, at last count, I think, the single largest donation to charity that's ever been given. I think it was around $34 billion. One gift to charity. An amazing moment, right? So there's this interview, and this guy asked Warren Buffett, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? What's the best piece of advice? He said, my dad told me that there are all these scorecards in life. Everybody keeps a scorecard. Most of us keep scorecards for each other. We look at each other and we're like, how's that person doing? How's that person doing? And we kind of keep track of ourselves in relation to everybody else. He says there's internal scorecards for us, and then there's external scorecards for everybody else. And Buffett said the best advice I ever got was to get rid of all the external scorecards and to never worry about any of them. Don't worry about what anybody thinks of you and don't worry about what you think of them. He said, all I do is I keep an internal scorecard. I wonder, am I living up to my standards for me? What this passage asks us to believe is that we each have an internal scorecard with God. It's not completely internal because it's between us and him, right? And the Bible tells us that God wants us to keep that scorecard on short accounts. It asks us to break our heart before God and live clean lives on the inside, not just the outside, not just look good, but actually be good. Be transformed, in the words of Romans 12, by the renewing of our minds and our hearts. Be transformed, be altered by the Spirit of God. Are we people who have broken hearts? Are we people who have this ability to worship from within, or are we just worshiping on the outside? Are we just showing up in church? Are we just people who have had a religious experience at some point in our history but are this week not so passionate about it? When the music starts playing, do we want to engage? Are we going after God during our time of praise and worship here at the church or even in our individual lives? What is shaping the very inner core of our existence? This passage asks us to keep that inner scorecard. Join me in prayer. God, we would ask you to help us to understand. The, the psalmist writes that we, should, that, that, that we should have our hearts searched by you, that we should see if there's any hurtful way in us, and that you would be the God who would show us. And so we ask you for that this morning. Most of us, and myself included, would sometimes like for you not to notice what goes on in the inside of our lives. And yet this passage reminds us that only by being altered on the inside, only by getting rid of all of the external stuff and focusing on what, where really our heart lies, what our motivations are, what our purposes are that no one else knows, can we really understand whether we're right with you. And we ask, Lord, that you would transform our lives from the inside out. Each one of us needs to be altered in this way. Each one of us needs moments with you that changes. So we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.